Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him amongst their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he had spoken to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom in stature, in favor with God and man. This is the word of our Lord. Would you please be seated? And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we praise you for what it reveals to us about our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord, for what we have seen already about who Jesus is and what he, is, he was here to do. And we thank you that we're going to see these things throughout all of our studies in the gospel according to Luke. So, Lord, as we approach this passage, please help us to see Jesus. Lord, help us to see and to understand in the fullness who he is. Lord, help us to understand his mission in the world of, of obedience out of love to you, Heavenly Father, for the purpose of salvation for your people. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond in submission to him. Lord, help us to seek to be faithful to submit to God out of our love for you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond in, in praise and worship and in adoration and, and Lord, to, to eagerly seek to be with you and to be with your people. We pray this all for your glory and for the building of your church. Amen. I have a distinct recollection of my brother Scott when he was then six or seven years old disappearing one summer afternoon. And I was on the phone with, with him and with my, with my parents asking them to confirm some of the details, but, but he doesn't remember it at all, and, and, it's, and it's foggy for my parents. But, but, but this, this memory that I have is, is very vivid, and so I'm, I'm almost positive that it actually happened. Anyway, here's what I remember. When my parents noticed that Scott was missing, they, they asked me, and, and I hadn't seen him. So they, they called his friends 
around the neighborhood and, and they hadn't seen him either. But then they, as they were beginning to get worried, they called other neighbors and nobody knew where he was. And now they were quite distressed, understandably, and they called the police. And the police came and, and took a report and began to look for him. This was long before the days of the Amber Alert. And later that day, my parents got a call from my neighbors on the corner. Scott had been at their house in their basement playing with one of their grandkids and they hadn't even known that he was there. So the neighbors immediately sent him home. And I distinctly remember my parents being intensely relieved that he was home and that he was safe, but also upset that he had disappeared without telling anyone where he was going. Now, he wasn't being disobedient. He just didn't realize that our parents would have been worried about him. I was a parent. I, I now have some idea of what it would be like to have a child go missing. I'm sure you can too. Many of us would have seen the, the movie Home Alone. It's become a, a Christmas classic, and I, I can't help but wonder if it's actually inspired by the events of our passage this morning. It's become a, a holiday classic. Eight-year-old troublemaker Kevin McAllister is accidentally left at home as his family takes a trip to Paris. Now, it sounds far-fetched, and maybe it is, but as they, they set it up, you can, you can almost see how this could take place. There, there's cousins there, and so with all the kids and the mix, it, it gets mixed, messed up who's there and who isn't. It's not one family, but two, and soda spills on Kevin's passport. I watched this last night for homework. Just, just kidding, but, but <laughs> his passport gets soda spilled on it, and, and then they, it actually gets thrown in the garbage with the, other, the papers they used to, to clean it up, and, and, and so it's taken out of the stack of passports. And there's, um, Kevin has a temper tantrum and, and then gets, gets banished up to the attic Kind of a cruel punishment for a kid, but banished up to sleep in the attic. And then the next morning, when they've got to get up early to catch the flight, his parents sleep in and, and miss their alarm. But, and in, in the chaos, as they're trying to get everybody into the van and, and do a head count, one of the, the neighbor kids actually gets mixed up in the head count, and, and they think that, that that's Kevin, but it's not. And, and so then they, and then there's, there's another, this is where it gets really, I think, far-fetched, that... Um, when they're about to board the flight, there's a mix-up. The flight, there's a mix-up at the ticket counter, and so they think that he's he's gotten on the plane, but he hasn't. Does this sound familiar? It sounds a lot like what's happened in this story. But then halfway across the Atlantic, his, it dawns on his mother that Kevin's not there, and she screams, "Kevin!" And the rest of the movie is about about him and his adventures in the home and his parents trying to get back to Kevin. Now, even though Kevin's temper tantrum in part set off the chain of events that, that led to his being left behind, Kevin couldn't really be blamed for the situation. You almost think that the parents could be charged with negligence, but, well, in the sequel, they probably should be. But, but again, I wonder if the producers were inspired by the events of, of Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52, where 12-year-old Jesus is left in Jerusalem as his parents head back to Nazareth after the Passover celebration. We know nothing about the boyhood of Jesus apart from this one event. And Luke is the only one who records it for us. 
This is the conclusion of the introduction of Luke's gospel narrative. It provides a transition from the birth and infancy account of Jesus as he is about to enter into his life, adult life, and ministry. This passage has the first recorded words of Jesus in Luke. And in fact, these are the first recorded words of Jesus in the New Testament. His words tell us who he is and what he was here to do. He is the Son of God and he's here to serve God. That is the, the, the ultimate dimensions of, of who he is and of his, of his ministry. And so the events of the, the birth and infancy narrative of Jesus, they begin and end at the temple. Remember, it began in the temple when Zechariah is, is visited by the angel Gabriel who announces the birth of, of Zechariah's son, John, even though his wife Elizabeth was barren. It starts in the temple. And then it ends here as, as Jesus' parents, Mary, his mother, and in his humanity, and Joseph, his adoptive father, travel to Jerusalem for the, peace, for the feast of the Passover. Now, the Passover is the beginning of the Jewish calendar. It commemorates the miraculous deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt as Jews killed a lamb, putting, putting the lamb's blood on the, the doorposts of their homes and then eating the lamb that caused the destroying angel to pass over their homes. And so the children in their homes were spared while the firstborn in the homes of the Egyptians were all killed. And that event created the opportunity for the Israelites to leave Egypt. So Jesus' parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover feast and we were told that they, they did so every year. All Jewish males were required to go to the temple three times a, three times a year. At the Passover at Pentecost, and at Tabernacles. You see that in Exodus 23, 14-17. Women were not required to go, and so it's a, it's, it's a mark of piety that Mary was there as well. Now, now we think about taking a, a trip as, as being a relatively easy thing to do, at least in most of our homes. But this would have been a challenge, both practically and financially, for this family to make the long trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Traveling directly, Jerusalem is about 100 kilometers straight south from Nazareth. But Jews would take the circuitous route around Samaria. So it was actually more like 130 kilometers and they would make the whole trip on foot. It would generally take three to four days each way as they traveled with, with other pilgrims, with, with friends and family and acquaintances to provide fellowship and, and also to provide protection from marauding robbers. Now, in their meticulous obedience to the ceremonial law, Mary and Joseph are seen as pious. As, as we saw last week, they, they provide a, a, an example for us, don't they, as, for families in the church, regularly worshiping together. They're devout worshipers, worshipers of God, submitting themselves to God's ceremonial law. And Jesus, at the age of 12, went with them. Now, in that culture, Jesus was considered to be on the cusp of adulthood. 
Once he was 13, a boy could, could become a, a son of the commandment, and, and he could, could become a full member of the synagogue, assuming the, the full responsibilities of his, of his circumcision as a full member of the covenant community. There was provision, though, in the, in the Mishnah for boys to go a, a year or two early in order to prepare for this event. And this may have been just such an occasion. As we saw from last week, Jesus' first time in the temple was when he was eight days old at his circumcision and his presentation. Well, this may have been Jesus' second visit to the temple. Or he may have gone up every year. But the, the, the latter seems actually more likely, given the fact that his mother was there as well, that they both went up every year. It's very likely that they took Jesus with them. As we think about, about this celebration, this, this feast of the Passover, remember who the Passover ultimately points to. The Passover ultimately points to Jesus. The Passover lamb that was sacrificed points to him. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It points to, to who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jesus was killed so that his people could be spared. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. So because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, people no longer have to submit to the ceremonial law. Jesus has fulfilled the Passover feast. God's people no longer have to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. We celebrate the Lord's Supper right here in our local church, remembering who Jesus is and what he has done for us. At the end of the feast, the, was it was seven days later, it's also um, at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was part of the, the Passover celebration, his parents embarked on the return trip to Nazareth, unaware of the fact that Jesus had remained behind in Jerusalem. They thought that he, he might have been with, with possibly with somebody else in the caravan. At the end of the day's journey, when the family would have naturally come back together again, imagine their shock when they realized that Jesus was missing. And they searched for him among the other pilgrims, going to, first to family members, and then to others that they knew, asking, have you seen Jesus? But they didn't find him. So they turned around and headed straight back to Jerusalem and began their search there. Imagine what must have been going through their minds. I mean, not only would you, you have the, 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 the normal fear that a parent would have when, it, when a child goes missing, but they understood, at least in part, who he was and the, the implications of this. And they were understandably very, very concerned. Well, three days later, they found him sitting in the temple as though nothing was wrong. And there wasn't anything wrong. He was sitting among the teachers, asking them questions. Question and answers flowing back and forth between teacher and student was, was really part of the religious training that, that a, a young Jewish boy would receive at that time. It's, it's really an excellent didactic tool, questions and answers. Jesus was an enthusiastic learner, humbly sitting at the feet of the religious teachers, learning from them. 
Jesus sat and listened. Just think about this. God the Son incarnate came into the temple, his temple, to be taught, not to teach. Now soon enough, he himself would be the teacher, but for now, he submitted to them. Just thinking practically about this, Think about the, the kind of, of people that you gravitate towards. The, the kind of people that, that you were eager to spend fellowship with. Well, if, you are, if your best friends are people in the world, that should concern you. That should concern you. And if your friends are, are people who, who profess to be Christians but, but are, are not walking in, in obedience and they're not characterized by godliness, that should concern you as well. Seek wise people. Seek people who are going to, to spur you on to love and good deeds. That's one, a big part of, 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 of why the, the church is here. For us to, to love and to worship God together. To be good examples for each other. Don't spend all your time with people who are in your particular demographic, people of your specific age with, with your interests. Now, thank God you have many godly people that you can spend time with in this congregation. And you have friends that, that you really are looking forward to, to talking with on a Sunday morning. And that's great. But think about the example of Jesus here. Seek older, godly men and women in the church to fellowship with. Again, it doesn't have to be just that, but, but really need to, to be intentionally making time for that. And if, if you are among the older folks in the congregation, seek out opportunities with the younger folks to, to be able to, to witness to them and to encourage them. When you're thinking about having somebody over for dinner, don't, don't just think about having your, your friends that you're close to over. Think about having somebody else over in the church. Somebody you haven't had much fellowship with yet. You will be enriched, and so will they. When you, when you talk to them, when you, answer, when you ask them questions, when you answer their questions, when you learn from each other. Many people are more interested in talking themselves more interested in talking themselves than in listening to other people? Are you more interested in communicating your opinions or in learning from others? Are you teachable? Are, are you willing to learn from others? Even Jesus was willing to learn from others. One of the things that I've, I've learned is that it, it is often a mark of, of maturity, wisdom, and love to be more eager to listen than to speak. Maturity because you don't need to prove yourself. Wisdom because you've learned that you can learn something from almost anyone. And love because you genuinely care what other people think. So you can follow Jesus' example. Now, this is the only time that we see in the, in the Gospel of Luke that, that Jesus is actually learning from the, the teachers, the, from the religious authorities. 
But his example is here for us. This is part of his growing in wisdom and in stature. We'll turn to that a little bit later on. All who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding as he answered their questions. Luke uses this, this word amazed frequently to describe people's response to God and his working. But, but at this point, even though the teachers were, were impressed by his wisdom and knowledge that he already displayed as a 12-year-old, they really didn't have any idea who it was that was sitting at their feet. But here we get a, a fuller picture of who Jesus is. This is no mere religious student. His, his wisdom, his knowledge, his insight reveals the fact that, that he is, it begins to reveal the fact that he is the ultimate authority. It's going to become clear in the course of his ministry that, that he is the wisdom of God personified. And so Jesus is here seen as, as submitting to them. But his allegiance was ultimately to the Father. Ultimately to the Father. And he showed that submission as he submitted to those who were in authority over him. He submitted to the teachers in the temple as far as he could. Jesus' submission to his Father means that, that sometimes his actions are going to be opposed by those around him even especially by those who are the religious authorities. The religious authorities aren't always going to have such an appreciation for Jesus, for what he has to say. I wonder how many of these men who were here with Jesus on that day were there when he began his formal ministry. I wonder if any of these religious teachers whose, whose questions are going to be set up to in an attempt to entrap Jesus. I wonder how many of those men were these men. Jesus' opponents then in his ministry will be, Jesus' opponents will be impressed by his answers, but they're going to be silenced by his answers. His wisdom and his knowledge is going to reveal their lack of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is going to answer them questions, but they will be unable to answer him. Frederick Danker says that one day his questions will pierce to the very core of the religious establishment and he will give answers to his own questions. Now obviously there were, there were some godly men amongst these men, but all of this makes it that much more astounding that the Son of God incarnate submitted himself to their teaching. In verse 48 we find out that it wasn't just the religious leaders who were shocked by this. His parents, were told, were astonished. They were astonished. This, this term includes the idea of, of being overwhelmed. They experienced shock and, and relief kind of mixed up at the same time. They had been deeply concerned for their son, and now their fears were revealed, but then this happened. They were not expecting this. It was not what they'd expected. And now Mary speaks for both parents. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. There, there's a scolding tone here. Mary wants him to know how worried they'd been about him. 
Have you ever been told by, by your parents, we were worried sick about you? My parents had every right to be worried about me. Maybe yours did too. But keep in mind that Jesus wasn't a child. He wasn't like a typical 12-year-old today. He was, was a 12-year-old that day again is almost an adult. Remember that, that Mary was, was likely married by the time she was 13. People grew up much more quickly in that, in that day. They were not as, as sheltered and as protected from many things, and they, they, they matured more quickly. So Jesus wasn't like a typical 12-year-old today. But even, but even more than that, much more than that, he wasn't like any 12-year-old ever. He was wise. And he was submissive. Qualities that are in short supply in most 12-year-olds and in most 50-year-olds. But even more than that, he was sinless. He was sinless. He'd never rebelled. He'd never thrown a tantrum. He'd never been selfish. He'd never been unkind. He'd never been irresponsible. The problem was theirs. It wasn't Jesus' problem. They should have known who he was and what he was here to do. Now Jesus explains to them, but he doesn't rebuke them. He does not rebuke them. He'd always been the exact opposite of, of those things, always. He'd always been submissive and wise. That's essentially how Jesus responds in, in, in verse 49. You should have known what I'm doing because of who I am. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Again, these are Jesus' first words in the Gospel account, in Luke's Gospel account. In fact, since, since Luke is the only one that records this, these are, are Jesus' first words recorded in any of the Gospels. And his first recorded words reveal, reveal his unique relationship with his Father. They tell us again who Jesus is and what he came to do, what he was here to do. Now we've heard it already several times in Luke's gospel, haven't we? We've heard it through, through Gabriel, through Elizabeth, through Mary, through Zechariah, through the angelic host, through the shepherds, through Simeon, through Anna. Next week we'll hear it through John the Baptist. It's all God's word, but now we hear it for the first, for the first time in the first recorded words of Jesus Christ. The phrase is literally, in the, of my father. The direct object needs to be supplied. The notes of the Net Bible explain that this seems to be an idiom that, that probably refers to the necessity of Jesus being involved in the instruction about God, given what he's doing. Now, most English Bibles translate it, I must be in my father's house. The King James says, I must be about my father's business. And this latter one, about my, being about my father's business, certainly fits the broader context. Jesus says in, in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. But again, most English Bibles have gone with in my father's house. And, and I believe this, this is better, in my opinion, because it fits the immediate context. 
Jesus' parents should have known that he was in the temple. Their, their problem was not with, with what he was doing, but with where he was. After all, Jesus did his father's business everywhere that he went. But here's the thing. Both are true. Jesus was in his father's house because he was about his father's business. He was in the temple because he was doing his father's will. This is what he was here to do. Jesus is focused on being in his father's house. After all, it's his house too. He must be where instruction about his father and about himself is taking place. Now, in the ancient Near East, the idea of a household is not just about location, but also about authority. Joel Green points out that Jesus is in the temple, the locus of God's presence, but he is there under the divine, under divine compulsion, engaged in teaching. The point is that he must align himself with God's purpose, even if this appears to compromise his relationship with his parents. Jesus loved and served God. And that love and service was his ultimate priority. And when his love and service of God conflicted with his love and servants of his parents or their perception of his love and servants of them, God came first. And we talked about this in our study of the fifth commandment. Your obedience to the first four commandments trumps your obedience of commandments 5 through 10. Jesus submitted to his parents whenever he could. But sometimes he couldn't submit to them because he was submitted first and foremost to God. Several times during the course of his ministry, we see his family taking a back seat when it competed with what he was here to do. But we also need to keep in mind that a failure to submit to parents in the things you can or should submit to them in is a failure to submit to God. More on that in a bit. Before we talk about what Jesus was here to do, let's consider who Jesus is. He is truly God. Abraham, Moses, David, and others had an intimate relationship with God. Jesus is God. And as God, he has a, he has a unique, uniquely intimate relationship with the Father. The, the Son and the Father are truly one. With the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. But even as I hold up my fingers, be careful, don't scratch that from your mind, because that could be heresy. Any, any illustration does not suffice to explain that the wonder and the mystery of the Godhead is immeasurably greater than the closest relationship of any earthly father and son. Listen to early church father Gregory of Nazianzen as he gloriously describes the wonder of the Trinity. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When we think of any one of the three, when I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole. My eyes are filled and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. 
When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one God with one will. They're one will and one essence. However, in the incarnation, the Son takes on a human will as well. He has two wills in the incarnation. He is God and man, truly God and truly man. He comes to dwell among a sinful people. He's like us in every way except without sin. Again, this is a wonderful mystery, but, mystery, but Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. This is called the hypostatic union. In the covenant of redemption, the Father and the Son decree the plan of salvation. God the Son will take on human flesh and submit to all of God's decrees. He will be the second Adam who obeys in every way the first Adam, and we have failed. He will die in our place, receiving the punishment that we deserve. This great exchange is that those who repent and turn to Christ have all of the righteousness of Christ imputed to them and all of their sin imputed to him. This is the ultimate mission for which Jesus came out of, of submission to his heavenly father. He, the, he always submitted, but we have never submitted. And Jesus died for our lack of submission. So Jesus Christ submits to the Father for the purpose of redemption, but his submission is temporary. The Son does not submit to the Father for all eternity. 1 Corinthians 11.3 does not say that the head of the Son is God, but the head of Christ is God. Again, that's an important distinction. Father, Son, and Spirit do different things, but they all serve one end because they are one God with one will. Puritan Thomas Goodwin presents the orthodox position. He says, first you must know that all the works of the three persons, what one doeth, the other two are said to do. It is a certain rule that the external works of the Trinity are undivided. All of their works to usward of creation and redemption and whatsoever else are all works of each person concurring to them as they have but one being, one essence, so that they have but one work. Yet as they have three several subsistences, so they, are, they have three several manners of working. There is one God with one plan of redemption, but each member of the Trinity is individually working out our salvation. Every member of the Trinity involved integrally in, in, all, in all that you need to be saved. So Jesus, God the Son in human flesh, submits to the Father's will. That's why he was here, but it's not just out of mere duty, it's out of perfect love. Perfect love for the Father and perfect love for the elect. It's not just that Jesus needed to be here to fulfill a legal requirement. He needed to be here because it was the Father's house. 
kids, you need to be in your father's house because you don't have any money of your own. You can't look after yourself. But suppose for a moment that you did have money, that, that you could actually look after yourself. Well, you'd still want to be in your father's house, wouldn't you? Because you love your father. How much more the Lord Jesus? How much more the Lord Jesus? In his incarnation, he left his heavenly abode, but he was still at home with the Father, especially when he was here in the temple. Last week, we saw how Mary and Joseph faithfully took Jesus to the temple, how Simeon was in the temple, how Anna did not depart from the temple, but was worshiping and fasting with prayer day and night. Now we see that Jesus must be in his Father's house. Well, you must be in the Father's house too. God's people must be in God's house. It was essential for Jesus. It is essential for you. Do you view Sunday morning as the highlight of your week? Do you say, I must be in my Father's house? I must get together with, with God's people and, and worship God and, and learn about God. And you seek other opportunities through the week to be in God's house as well. Is this really the, the, the high point of your week on Sunday morning and at other times you get to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Again, if it was essential for Jesus, it's essential for us. You need to be in God's house because it's part of God's business. It's not enough to be in the Father's house unless you're there to be about God's business. Some people go to church to make business contracts. Some people go to church to hang out with their, their friends. Some people go to church for good food. Some people come to church to get married. Some people come to church to feel good about themselves. Well, why do you come to church? Unless it's to worship God and to learn about God with God's people, then you need to recalibrate your thinking. Do you understand that it is necessary for you to be in your father's house? Are you about your father's business? Well, in Jesus' response to Mary, we have a reminder that as God, Jesus has a father in heaven. And his heavenly father's work demanded his first attention. Jesus was full of wisdom and he sought to grow in wisdom. We saw him there asking and answering good questions, but Mary and Joseph didn't fully get it. They, they should have understood. They, they should have understood again who he was and what he was here to do. But it says in verse 50, they did not understand the thing that he had spoken to them. Likewise, the disciples later will, will not fully understand until the resurrection who Jesus is and what he was here to do. Do you understand who Jesus is and what he was here to do? So Mary and Joseph didn't get it. They didn't fully get it at this point, but look what happens next. He submitted to them. 
Verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus went back to Nazareth with them and submitted with them for the next 18 years. It seems that Jesus was in the family home in Nazareth and submitting to his parents. Now somewhere during that period, it seems that the Joseph died, but he exits the story here. We do not hear again about Joseph. Now some of you here think that it might be hard to submit to your parents. And maybe even their character makes it hard to submit to them sometimes. Maybe you are even a believer, but your parents aren't. Well, Joseph and Mary were godly parents, but Jesus was sinless. He was the perfect standard of righteousness, and he was submissive to them. This is a, a participle here, and it's translated was submissive. In, in actual fact, it's, it's in the present tense. His submission was a, a continual habit in his relationship towards his parents. Jesus kept the fifth commandment because he kept the first commandment. Jesus kept all of the commandments because he kept the first commandment. But we've never kept any of the commandments to the extent that God would have us in his perfect holiness and righteousness. So we need a savior. We need this Jesus who obeyed as we can never obey, as we have never obeyed, and we never will obey until we are glorified with him in glory. So submit to your parents whenever you can, by God's grace, and also honor them always. Jesus' allegiance is ultimately to the Father. He has come to do the Father's will. And I wonder, maybe you have found that when you seek to do God's will, that, that you find that, that, that people rebuke you, or even reject you. Maybe even your own family members have, have rebuked you or rejected you because of your desire to be obedient to God. Now it's painful when that happens, isn't it? But take heart that it is actually a privilege when you're persecuted because of your faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. Because remember, Jesus did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And quite often, the, the very enemy, our enemies will be the very members of our own household. But may it never be because of our lack of submission. May it never be because of our sin that we are made to be separated from, from those we, we, we love. May we, may we seek to always love them and to honor them in the grace that God provides for the glory of his name. So Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart. We saw this as well in, in 2.19. Again, Mary's treasuring these things as she did when the shepherds came. She, she's making note of these things in her interaction with, with Simeon that the sword would pierce her own soul. She's, she's aware of that and these things will eventually all come together when she sees the crucifixion of her son. Then she'll begin to understand 
when she witnesses the resurrection of her son. Then she will understand that much more. And now as she is glorified in heaven, now she understands fully and will continue to grow in her understanding and glory in the same way for all of us. So as Leon Moore says, she might not understand, but she remembered. Well, finally, in verse 52, we see that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. This echoes verse 40. It also echoes Proverbs 3, 3 and 4. It's, it's, let, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So Jesus grew spiritually and also socially. This echoes uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 80, as, as John the Baptist, we're told, grew and became strong in the Spirit. But John got one such statement. Jesus gets two. And far more than that, Jesus has favor with God. Not only did he have favor with angels and shepherds and Simeon and, and Anna and the teachers in the temple, but Jesus found favor with God. He'd already amazed his teachers. He grew in wisdom. He grew in insight. All the way through in his, in his incarnation, in his ministry, he grew in the knowledge of the gospel. Now this is, this is maybe a little bit confusing to us as we think about, okay, well, so Jesus is fully God. And so as, as being fully God, he had all the attributes of God. Yet, he, he's told, we're told that he had to grow in wisdom. I found Matthew Poole's um, comments here helpful. If any ask how he was the eternal wisdom of the Father, increased in wisdom, they must know that all things in Scripture which are spoken of Christ are not spoken with respect to his entire person, but with respect to the one or the other nature united in that person. So he increased in wisdom as he did in age and stature with respect to his human, not with respect to his divine nature. So Jesus in his human nature grew in wisdom and stature even as he was always the omniscient God. And so with that, we, we have the, the end of the birth and infancy narrative. With that, we have the, the end of the introduction of Luke. The next 18 years of Jesus' life is unknown to us. But as this closes, we're, we're left with a sense of expectancy, aren't we? We're, we're, we're left wondering, what's going to happen next? As, as Luke's gospel account continues, we're going to see clearly who Jesus is and, and what he was here to do. And so we have an expectation of that, but, but we also have a sense of assurance, don't we? That, that because God is faithful to fulfill His promises, that He's going to fulfill all of His promises through His Son. The Father is fulfilling His promises through His promised Son. Now, people often struggle with who Jesus is and what He was here to do. But it's essential you get this right because your eternity hangs on these two points. Not just about getting the right answer, but about submitting to Him as Lord and Savior. Jesus submitted to the religious authorities whenever He could. 
Jesus submitted to his earthly parents whenever he could. But he submitted to God always. As must, me, as must we always submit to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you that the Father of Jesus, God the Father, is our Father. Lord, you are our Father in heaven. Lord, your name is hallowed. Your name is exalted above every name. And we praise you, triune God, that we have the privilege of, of knowing you and of worshiping you and of submitting to you. Lord, all of us submit to something all the time. Lord, may we never submit to sin. May we always submit to you that your name might be exalted in and through us. Amen.